Welcome to the Continuing Education Podcast for CASA Volunteers, connecting you with experts who can advance your advocacy for children and families. I'm your host, Maggie Halpin, and this is CASA On The Go. Welcome back, y'all. I am truly honored to have in the studio with us today the brilliant Tanya Rollins, who is the CPS Disproportionality Manager at the Texas Department of Family and Protective Services. Um, And thank you so much, Tanya, for being willing to share your time with us and share your expertise um, with me and other CASA volunteers around the state. All right. Thank you for having me. I appreciate I appreciate being here and I always appreciate stepping in. And when CASA invites me, I come. Well, we're, we are so grateful to have you um, and all the wisdom that you bring. Um, so before we get we dig into really talking about the nitty gritty of disproportionality and what that means for our advocacy, I would love to just start off by hearing about your background and the path that brought you to your current role as CPS disproportionality manager. Sure. I'll try to cut it short, too. <laughs> um, once again, Tanya Rollins, I have been with the agency for 29 years and about six months, wow. something along those lines. Yes. You you don't hear a lot about people that have been with the agency long term. I started out in San Antonio. I was an investigator. I did investigations um, for several years. And then I came to Austin to be one of the first night duty workers, which meant I worked from 4.30 in the evening until 3 a.m. in the morning. Wow. And I was only working emergency cases. Loved it, loved it, loved it. As with what happens in child welfare, which is not unusual, I got to the point where doing direct casework wasn't benefiting me, essentially, and may not have been benefiting the families I was serving. Mm. So I left to go to the hotline and I did the intake hotline for several years before then becoming a supervisor at the hotline. Then I decided I wanted to be a trainer. (laughs) Wow. So I left the hotline to train our new caseworkers um, across, well, actually in Region 7 here in the Austin, Waco, Tyler, Beaumont sort of area. Then I left um, doing training to be the academy manager, meaning I managed trainers for the Waco, Beaumont, Tyler, Austin area. Okay. During that time, Joyce James, who was our then assistant commissioner for Child Protective Services, started doing work in disproportionality. And she started releasing and implementing programs around disproportionality I had always been interested. I was interested in this work in undergrad, and I was definitely interested in in graduate school as well. So in 2010, when the Center for the Elimination of Disproportionality and Disparities formed, there was a vacancy, and that vacancy was for the CPS Disproportionality Manager, managing the race equity work across the state of Texas. And so at that point, I decided to make that leap and begin doing the DISPRO work across the entire state. One of the best decisions that I've made. And so I've been doing this since the end of 2010 when the Center for the Elimination of Disproportionality and Disparities was formed. Wow, that's amazing. I'm (laughs) like in awe of all of the experience that you bring from all of those different layers of the you know, system that you've 
experience firsthand. So that's amazing. Yes. And then my part-time job is as an um, adjunct professor at Texas State University. Oh, wow. And so you teach around these issues as well? I do. I teach child welfare as well as diversity and equity and leadership courses, a little bit of everything. Awesome. In the School of Social Work. Great. Well, thank you so much again for sharing all that expertise with us today. Um, So let's talk first about what we mean by disproportionality and then um, talk about the important work that you're doing to address it. So research shows that race and socioeconomic status often impact decisions at every stage of the child welfare system, right? So from reporting to foster care placements to decisions on the termination of a parent's rights to their child. And um, disproportionality is something that we really go into depth about in our volunteer pre-service training um, for CASA volunteers. But of course, I think it's so important that these conversations are continued beyond the classroom walls and that this is something that we're thinking and talking about as we're going about our advocacy, interfacing with families and schools and making recommendations to the court and all of the important things that um, CASA volunteers do. So let's just have a quick refresher for folks. Um, What do we mean when we talk about disproportionality and how do we see that surfacing in our child welfare system here in Texas? Sure. It's very interesting because if you type in disproportionality into Word, you know, you get that little red line. Word doesn't even recognize it as a word. Oh, wow. Which is very interesting. Disproportionality essentially really just means not in proportion, disproportionate. So when we talk about it in terms of systems work, we're talking about the overrepresentation or underrepresentation of a particular group in a particular system as compared to their numbers in the general population. So in child welfare, what that means is we know that in Texas, African-American children are overrepresented in the child welfare system. So when we look at the number of children awaiting adoption for African-Americans as compared to the numbers in the general population, we'll see that African-Americans in awaiting adoption in foster care essentially are about two times their numbers in the general population. Wow. So in Texas, African-American children are about 11 percent of the population. They represent 22 percent of the children awaiting adoption. Wow. So that's what we mean when we talk about that overrepresentation. What I always want to make sure I tell people is to make sure we're very clear, this isn't a Texas phenomenon. This is the case in just about all 50 states. And so you will see that African-Americans are overrepresented. In most states, you will also see that Native Americans are overrepresented. One of the things that we have to be very clear about, though, because you notice I didn't say that Latinos were overrepresented, is that just because someone is not overrepresented in the system doesn't mean that they're getting parity or equity in terms of services as well. Yes. So when we look at our Latino families, we have to always talk about, even though Latinos are not overrepresented in our system, Do we have enough Spanish-speaking therapists if that's what's needed? Do we have enough Spanish-speaking caseworkers, right? Are our foster homes, do we have enough foster homes so that we minimize the trauma to a Spanish-speaking child if they are removed from their home? 
So we have to talk about service delivery. We also have to talk about how we get to this piece called disproportionality, right? So we have to talk about the disparities. And that's what you were mentioning. You were mentioning this unequal treatment at different decision-making points. So we know that in terms of reporting, if you are a person of color, African-American or Latino, you're more likely to be reported than your Anglo counterparts, right? As a result, we also know that you're more likely to be investigated than your Anglo counterparts as well. We also know that in terms of confirmations in the state of Texas, Anglos are more likely to be confirmed for abuse or neglect. Hmm. Although families of color are more likely to be reported for abuse and neglect. We also know that in terms of removals, that if you are African-American, you're slightly more likely to be removed. And we've made progress in decreasing that disparity over time. We also know that over time, when we look at our numbers, that if you're African-American, you're less likely to be reunified than your Anglo and Latino counterparts. We also know that if you are Latino or African-American, you're also less likely to be adopted within 12 months of termination of parental rights. And the median time to adoption is longer for Latinos and African-Americans as well. And all of those disparities are really what get us to that thing called over-representation or disproportionality. Wow. Well, thank you for that. That was such a clear and powerful explanation of this reality. And I think hearing all of that just underlines how important it is that our CASA advocates are really aware of these dynamics and um, focused on how they can um, interrupt the dynamics that lead to this overrepresentation that you're Definitely. talking about. Um, so in your role with DFPS now, what does your work around disproportionality look like across the state? Wow. It really looks different in different places, right? So one thing is here in Travis County, Travis County has formed the Travis County Child Welfare Race Equity Collaborative. Long name, yeah. right? But what it does is it highlights my work with community. And the fact that any work we do should have community at the forefront, should have community leading the way. And that's why it should look different no matter what community you go to. If I go to Houston, Houston should look different than Dallas because the dynamics of the community are different. A lot of my work also revolves around doing cultural responsiveness training. So really, when we really think about it, most of us grow up in some sort of bubble. And we grow up in a bubble in which we interact mainly with people that look like us, mainly with people with the same backgrounds that we have. So really working with our external stakeholders and our staff around cultural responsiveness training. So all of our staff are required to have a course called Knowing Who You Are, Racial and Ethnic Identity, which CASA, I believe, also offers as well. And we've done that as a mandate for all of our staff. Wow, that's awesome. Yes, yes. We also offer a course called Undoing Racism, which is offered by the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond out of New Orleans. 
So we offer that course about two to three times a year. We offer it for stakeholders and our staff because we also believe that people need to have a foundation for racism. We also need to use the same language because one of the things that happens is we don't use the same language. I think racism is this and you think it's that. And in order for us to really do the work, we have to be on the same page. On top of that, we're continuously trying to build our cultural responsiveness library in-house. One of the things that happened about a year ago, we put a committee together to develop a course called the Latino Experience. Hmm. Now, the great thing about this course is in the development, everybody on the work group was Latino. And that is because I truly have a belief that people of color should tell their own story. So a lot of times when you go get your undergrad degree or you go get your graduate degree, somebody puts a book in front of you in which there's a chapter on working with Latinos, working with African-Americans. Interesting enough, there's very rarely a chapter on working with white people. Yeah, that's a great point. Exactly, right? And so usually those chapters aren't written by people of color. So what what's in there is perpetuation of stereotypes and assumptions. And so by putting together a work group, what we were able to make sure of is that the content of this particular course was based on the reality of Latinos and the viewpoint of Latinos. So we're extremely proud of that. We also work on this intersection of poverty and neglect, intersection of poverty and child welfare by offering a course called the Poverty Simulation. On top of that, one of my other daily duties is I look at policies and practices and how they impact the families that we serve, as well as sitting on various work groups on different from different organizations across the state to make sure that people are beginning to look at things through a race equity lens. And oftentimes what happens is because in this field, the spaces we go into are predominantly white spaces. Oftentimes there's not that voice there that says, "Mm, stop for a minute, look at it through that way. Yeah. Also pointing out to people and working to get our parents and our youth into these spaces. Yeah. And that's awesome to hear because I think we really need um, the people with lived experience to be leading the work that we're doing to serve them. (laughs) And you're correct. They should be. And on top of that, I also do our LGBTQ equity work. And I liaison, liaison with our three federally recognized tribes here in the state of Texas so that we are doing our very best to adhere to ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act, while understanding the trauma that we have inflicted on indigenous communities. And to be honest with you, the trauma that we continue to put on indigenous communities. Wow. What do you do in your spare time? Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's so much important work that you're doing, and I'm amazed that you're able to carry all of that forward. Um, So thank you. We really appreciate everything (laughs) that you're making happen across Texas. Um, So 
You mentioned racism and I want to just kind of like pause and talk about that for a minute because I I think the causes of, you know, racial um, disproportionality and disparate outcomes, you know, which unfortunately cross so many systems in our society um, are complex and deeply rooted in our country's history um, and not always easy to talk about. But I think it's important that we are talking about them and how those um, are still impacting you know, our um, decisions and interactions um, today. So what factors do you see contributing to racial disproportionality in the child welfare system and in these other systems that we know are impacting the lives of the children and the families that we're working with? Right. I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you're willing to say the word racism because a lot of times people aren't. And it's complex. And I think understanding that it's complex and understanding that these factors are rooted in the history of this country and the racism of this country. So we have to start with institutional racism, the policies and practices that continue to oppress poor communities and communities of color. So beginning there, I think when we talk about institutional racism, We have to make sure that we're not talking about it in terms of historical, but in terms of what continues to happen. And I usually tell people I'm not trying to be political, but if we really look at current policies and practices that have been going on for generations, they've never stopped. Right. Right. We want to believe that they have. Also tell people to really understand that we're 55 years out from the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act. I'm 51. So we're talking about something that is not that far removed. Absolutely. Right? So we have to look at institutional racism. We have to be able to look at our own biases. So the biases of your CASA workers, the biases of of our caseworkers, The biases of our executive staff, your executive staff, we all come to the table with biases that we have to address. Also, our lack of cultural responsiveness. Some people call it cultural competency. Some people call it cultural sensitivity. I like to say cultural responsiveness because it's an action-oriented term. Yeah, I like that. We also have to talk about geographical context. You have to understand that when we talk about who's getting reported, it's communities of color and poor communities. And because of our history of institutional racism, poverty and race are connected and they'll probably forever be connected. So you also have to look at the context of concentrated poverty and who's living in concentrated poverty, right? Who has access to resources, who doesn't have access to resources. Then you have to look at the policies, procedures, the duplicative processes of organizations. And are they really set out to truly serve children and families, right? And who's at the table when we're talking about that? Then you also have to look at family factors that take place as well. Incarceration, which then ties to who's more likely to be incarcerated. You also have to look at substance abuse and how we treat substance abuse in some communities versus how we treat substance abuse in other communities, single parent households. So it is very complex. All of these things 
feed into how we got to this point and what's going to help us getting out. Awesome. Yeah. And I think that talking about this and hearing all of that can sometimes feel discouraging for people and and people sometimes struggle to know, like, well, what can I do? And so um, we're going to wrap up for the moment. But when we come back in our next episode, we're going to be talking about some things that CASA volunteers can do to make their um, to have a race equity lens on their advocacy and um, to tap into some of that cultural responsiveness that Tanya's talking about. Thanks for listening to Casa on the Go. Join us next time for more dynamic continuing education brought to you by Texas Casa.